The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In June of 2014, residents in Moncton, New Brunswick, were going about their evenings. Parents were making dinner while children played in their yards. No one could have predicted that this warm and peaceful evening would abruptly become one of the darkest points in Moncton's history. Join me now as we take a look into 20 minutes that would end by shattering a community a manhunt for a murderer whose unimaginable actions left the city on lockdown and children fatherless. We'll explore how a seemingly harmless young man turned into a cold-blooded killer and how grief-stricken families and their community pulled together to rebuild and heal. In 2014, Moncton was a bustling maritime city with a population of about 69,000 people while managing to maintain its small-town feel. The residents were welcoming and prided themselves on creating a friendly atmosphere. In fact, a few years earlier, their city was voted the most polite city in North America by Reader's Digest. But a dark cloud was about to cast a shadow on that peaceful image. On the evening of Wednesday, June 4th, all had been calm for Moncton residents in the north end of the city as they happily went about their usual evening routines. But that suddenly changed when at 7.18 p.m., a woman called 911 to report a young man in camouflage clothing. He was walking down the center of Pioneer Avenue carrying two high-powered rifles. She told the dispatcher it appeared he was on some kind of mission. Within seconds, other residents also called in to confirm the disturbing sighting. Within two minutes of the first call, the 911 operator dispatched Royal Canadian Mounted Police officers. One of the first responding RCMP officers to the scene did a preliminary search of the woods along Pioneer Avenue where the suspect had last been seen, a densely wooded area extending alongside a number of streets in the neighborhood. The RCMP officer felt it was too risky to stay in the woods on his own. The man could be hiding anywhere in his camouflage fatigue, and if he wanted to, could likely get a clean shot at him. That's when he decided to request police dog services and for a perimeter to be set up. He then took cover behind a utility pole while keeping an eye on the woods. As other officers arrived, they began to cordon off the area and question witnesses. The description they pieced together was a male in his late 20s with shoulder-length brown hair 
wearing camo clothing and a brown headband. He was also apparently well-armed, carrying two rifles. Witnesses also told police that the man had been acting strangely. He ignored people he passed and appeared to be in a complete daze. They wondered if he was high on something. Back by a different area of the woods, an officer heard branches cracking and spotted the suspect exiting through the tree line, walking through a new housing development. He looked like a hunter stalking its prey as he stopped, listened, and looked around. The man then went into the woods bordering the homes on Broomfield Court, Mailhot Avenue, Bellarose Court, and Wilshire Way, eventually disappearing out of sight. The RCMP adjusted their perimeter and went throughout the streets yelling to residents to take cover in their homes. Many people were out walking or in their front yards making the most of their early evening and were utterly shocked by the warning. By that point, more than eight officers had arrived at the scene. Rather than going after the suspect, the officers decided to wait a few more minutes for the police dog services to arrive. At that same point, the man was spotted leaving the woods and walking on Broomfield Court. He was heading towards an unsuspecting resident's backyard. One of the RCMPs yelled out to him, Hey! When the man spun around to see who was yelling at him, he fired three shots in rapid successions towards Constable Fabrice Gévaudin. All three shots hit small birch trees on either side of the officer before lodging into the wall of a nearby home. As Constable Fabrice ran northeast along Broomfield Court, he called out over the radio, He's shooting at me, he's shooting at me. But it was too late. The next two bullets fired were shot from less than a hundred feet away, and both struck the officer in the chest. Officer down, officer down, officer down! Do you want the ambulance at 15, bro? For two and a half hours, other officers tried to save Fabrice's life by continuing compressions. But when paramedics arrived on the scene, they broke the heartbreaking news. Fabrice was gone. Moments after Fabrice was shot, Constable Dave Ross with the police dog services arrived on the scene. When Dave first got the call about the strange man wandering the streets, he immediately rushed from a family barbecue to help protect his community. After turning onto Mailhot Avenue, Dave spotted the shooter, who was calmly walking down the street, tossing his rifle from one hand to the other. He radioed in, got a visual, will be on takedown in a second. It was then that the suspect turned towards Dave's SUV. As the constable threw on his lights and accelerated, he fired two shots through his windshield at the shooter. The suspect also began shooting, managing to fire off six rounds. Some of the bullets disabled Dave's vehicle, while three others struck him in his thumb, head, and left shoulder. Just two minutes after Fabrice had been gunned down, Dave too was gone. At 7.54 p.m., another constable showed up on the call about the armed man and was pinned down by gunfire at the intersection of Hildegard Drive and Mailhot Avenue. 
as she ducked behind the dashboard of her cruiser. The shooter disabled her vehicle with a fire of bullets. She was trapped. While the man repeatedly shot at her from the cover of a nearby wooded ditch, the constable radioed in several times for assistance before anyone showed up. It was Constable Eric Stefan J. Dubois who responded to the call for backup. He'd been stationed over at a nearby roadblock. When he arrived on the scene, Eric attempted to place his vehicle between the trapped constable and the shooter, but was wounded by gunfire while trying to figure out the gunman's exact position. As Eric ran to a nearby fire station for medical assistance, the shooter left the area. At the same time, another member of the RCMP picked up the female officer who'd been pinned down behind her car. Just seconds after the Hildegard Avenue shooting, Constable Marie Gauguin arrived at the fire station. Before she even got out of her car, the gunman fired six rounds at her. Her front passenger window was shot out by multiple rounds, and two bullets hit her passenger side door. Marie called out over the radio, I'm shot, I'm shot in the head, I'm shot twice, somebody help me. Another RCMP member arrived and shifted Marie's car into drive and told the injured officer, get out of there. As she drove away, another shot shattered the driver's side window. No ambulances were permitted to enter the active shooter area, so Marie was driven to the hospital by fellow officers. Eric was taken to the hospital in a vehicle commandeered from a civilian. It became apparent by that point that the gunman was only targeting officers. He'd had plenty of opportunities to fire at civilians, but didn't seem interested. Meanwhile, after returning to his detachment to grab a shotgun, Constable Doug Larsh arrived at Mailhot Avenue and set off on foot after the shooter. Due to his role with the RCMP, Doug was in plain clothes when he arrived at the scene, but because he was wearing body armor and carrying a large gun, there was no doubt he was a police officer. As Doug stood by his vehicle preparing to go look for the suspect, nearby residents banged on their windows trying to warn him. They'd seen the shooter slip off into a wooded area and knew that the officer's life was in immediate danger. Just then, four shots rang out towards Doug. The rounds passed through his vehicle, striking him. As he buckled and fell to the ground, witnesses saw the killer come out from his hiding place. As the man headed towards the officer's vehicle, Doug somehow managed to get to his feet, firing off seven rounds at the gunman. But he missed. Doug suffered a shot to the head and died at 8.07 p.m. Around uh, 7.30 uh, on June 4th, uh, while responding to a call of an armed man in the north end of the city of Moncton, uh, three of uh, Kodiak RCMP's officers were shot and killed. Two other officers were also injured, but their life is not threatened at this time. At this precise moment, we are still actively looking for the shooter. He is believed to still be in the Pinehurst subdivision area of Moncton. We are urging 
the uh, people who live in that area to stay inside and lock their doors and to the people to stay away from that area if they don't have to be in there to allow us to do our job and locate this individual as quickly as possible. From the time Fabrice went down to when Doug was killed, only 20 minutes had gone by. After murdering Officer Doug Larsh, the gunmen fled again into the nearby woods. This time, the RCMP didn't follow. The threat of ambush in the woods was too high. Instead, they pulled back and called in for reinforcements. Within hours, hundreds of resources from other districts, detachments, and agencies poured into Moncton to lend a hand. As darkness began to fall, on the terrorized community, police used social media to warn residents to stay in their homes and to lock their doors. They asked everyone to leave their porch lights on, which would help them in their search. A little after 9 p.m., photos taken of the gunman by a reporter began to emerge. Within minutes, family and friends of the suspect started calling into 911, identifying him as 24-year-old Justin Burke, a Moncton resident who lived on Pioneer Avenue. Although the shooter's identity was now known, the authorities still had to find him. Moncton was now virtually under lockdown as the RCMP combed the streets looking for him. Roadblocks were set up, buses taken off the roads, while government buildings were shut down mail service suspended, and schools closed. One resident of Moncton remembers back to that terrifying evening. I had been attending an athletic awards banquet with my oldest daughter at Moncton High School, and partway through the awards banquet, the principal came on stage, and he had announced that the school was on lockdown because there was a shooter in Moncton. After the awards were over, he said that the lockdown was lifted for that area because uh, Moncton High School was not in the area of Moncton North where they had done the lockdown. After that period, I called my other daughter who was not with me to make sure where she was. She told me she was at home. Our home is not in Moncton North. I said, okay, good. Just stay there. I don't know if you've heard about the shooter, but just stay there. I'm on my way home. I didn't realize that I was coming home to the area where apparently he was. When I was driving home, I did see a greater police presence entering into my neighborhood. They were asking where are you going and stuff like that. And I was like, well, I, my house is just around the corner. Can I go there? And they're like, well, go home and, you know, pretty much stay put. I stayed put. I had my porch lights on and just turned on the news. As soon as I turned on the news, the news outlets are announcing my street, Elmhurst Road, as the shooter is in Elmhurst which really, really terrified me because originally when it was announced to me by the principal, it was in the Ryan Road area, which is 
way past where the Moncton Casino is. It was probably about 20 minutes after that where my family who lives just outside Toronto and friends across the country were like, I know somebody in Moncton. I think she lives on Elmhurst. People started to call me and even news outlets started to call me because he's apparently on my street. There's woods that our house backed onto and so it wasn't like we had a clear view or anything like that. It's like, well, there's this guy with these guns and we were told that he was mimicking Rambo. And from what I remember as a child watching Rambo, he's got ammunition strapped around his body. He's carrying like five guns and he's just ready to open fire and shoot anything. We spent the evening just kind of huddled as a family and there were police, utility vehicles, army-like cars driving up and down my street. There was police helicopter shining the light so it would come over and there would be a spotlight over my home. It did that pretty much all night. As long as it was dark, that's kind of what was occurring. By mid-morning the next day, the RCMP admitted they still hadn't located Justin, but assured the public the manhunt was continuing. They also urged people not to post information on social media about where the officers were searching, as it hampered their operations and put officers' lives in danger. After dealing with countless unconfirmed sightings, just before midnight on June 5th, a resident living at the eastern end of Mecca Drive called 911. They'd seen a man wearing camouflage clothing crouched down by their kitchen window. When they spotted him, he took off into the woods behind their house. An emergency response team immediately headed to the address in tactical armored vehicles. Clear the air, clear the air. Uh, at place C, is there somebody walking in the woods from our team? In relation to the yard van that's in the intersection of Mountain Road and the 15, we have a visual, we had a visual only of a light, somebody walking in the woods with a light, copy? Point copies, command post confirmed. Sounds like Erd has our fella in custody. Do you have the actual suspect in custody or a person in custody? No, it's the target, the target is in custody. For everyone's information, it is a positive confirmation, it is the suspect. On June 6th, 10 minutes after midnight, officers surrounded the woods where Justin was hiding and demanded he come out with his hands up. Surprisingly, the young man surrendered, calling out, I give up, don't shoot. Justin was forced down to the ground and lay sprawled out for quite some time while police searched him for weapons and confirmed his identity. Following the arrest, Commanding Officer Roger Brown confirmed the identity of the fallen officers. I can now confirm the identities of our three fallen members. Constable Fabrice Georges Gévaudin, 45 years of age, who was born in Boulogne-Bayancourt, France. Constable Dave Joseph Ross, 32 years of age, from Victoriaville, Quebec. Thirdly, 
Constable Doug James Lurch, 40 years of age, from St. John, New Brunswick. And I can't dig deep enough to explain the sadness that we all feel. We need to start this healing process together. Thankfully, this morning, we can all go back home and move about in this city freely and with a sense of confidence that was there before. And again, please keep your thoughts and your prayers with us, with our families, as we grieve and heal together. On Thursday, June 5th, a makeshift memorial was built on the steps of the Kodiak RCMP headquarters. Throughout the day, a stream of residents dropped off balloons, cards, and posters with words of thanks. The city had announced that there was going to be a memorial down at the Kodiak RCMP station. There was a lot of people holding hands, lighting candles. They brought flowers. It was huge community presence. I don't think I have ever seen that many people in Moncton collect in one area ever. I shook hands. I hugged other police officers. It was very, very communal. It was like everybody was a family. You talked to strangers. Didn't matter who anybody was. It was just like, we are in this together, and we are now one. The officers had sacrificed so much trying to keep their community safe. The condolence gifts were later collected and sorted. Some of the items were shared with the families of the fallen officers. Three maple trees were among the gifts that were planted at the officers' homes as a reminder of new beginnings, even during a time of unthinkable loss. After the shooting spree, Canadians across the country stood in solidarity with Moncton, expressing their condolences. The CN Tower in Toronto was lit in red, blue, and gold, the colors of the RCMP regimental flag. The mayor of Victoriaville, Constable Dave Ross's hometown, asked Canadians to leave their porch lights on to honor the RCMP officers who died in the shooting. In a tremendous show of support, porch lights were left on across the country, and Canadians took to social media to share photos of their outdoor lights burning brightly for Moncton. On Friday, June 6th, Justin Burke made his first court appearance under heavy guard. He showed no emotion as the judge charged him with three counts of first-degree murder and two counts of attempted murder. On July 3rd, Justin appeared before a packed courtroom at the Moncton Provincial Courthouse. His lawyer, David Lutz, asked for a psychiatric assessment of his client. Lutz told the court, I've met extensively with the father, and to a lesser degree with the mother. I'm aware of the circumstances that led up to this horrific incident, and I feel, based upon my experience, this is an appropriate case for psychiatric assessment. Victor Burke said his son started displaying inappropriate behavior in December of 2012. 
He ranted and raged about issues outside of his control and seemed paranoid. When his strange behavior continued and he bought another gun, his parents kicked him out of the house. Before he was asked to leave, Justin enjoyed a close relationship with his six siblings and parents. His father described the Burks as a close-knit family. Justin still stopped by the family home after moving out. During his visits, his father said his son was clearly battling depression and dealing with financial issues. Justin worried his family when he paced back and forth and talked about things that made no sense. About a month before the shootings, Justin's father had noticed his son's emotional and mental state deteriorating even further. At 4.37 p.m. on the day of the shooting, Victor saw his son and he'd mentioned he was heading to work. But he never went. When his father found out he lied, he called him and asked him why. Justin was distant and disrespectful. He had a very dry tone and it seemed as though another person was speaking. Eventually, Justin hung up on his dad, something he'd never done before. The judge agreed with the need for a psychiatric assessment, and Justin was ordered to return to court on July 31st. Ultimately, it was determined that Justin was competent and mentally fit to stand trial. After electing to be tried by judge and jury, he was told his case would return to court on August 8th. When Justin's day in court finally arrived, he stunned the crowded courtroom when he pleaded guilty to all charges. Justice Smith asked the defendant if he realized that meant he wouldn't get a trial. Justin simply replied, yes. The high-profile sentencing hearing held in October brought out such a large crowd that an overflow room had to be set up. The Crown asked for three consecutive life sentences on the first-degree murder charges, meaning Justin wouldn't be eligible for parole for 75 years. To do so, they needed to leverage a section of the Criminal Code of Canada, which had been amended in 2011, allowing judges to extend parole ineligibility in cases involving multiple murders. On the other side, the defense argued for parole eligibility at 50 years, giving their client at least a glimmer of hope for future freedom. The Crown relied heavily on recordings and witness testimony. RCMP radio calls were also played that captured the confusion and terror that unfolded in the north end of the Moncton neighborhood. 911 calls made by frightened residents were also shared. One caller told the dispatcher that Justin had said, Don't worry, I'm not out to kill civilians. I'm only after government officials. Evidence presented at the hearing suggested that Justin and his siblings had a sheltered childhood. Despite having a loving and supportive family, Justin had developed a significant problem with authority and rules. This made it difficult for him to hold down a job and impossible to fulfill his dream of joining the military. Those who knew him noticed a significant change in his behavior in the months leading up to the shooting. Two days before the shooting, 
Justin had ranted in rage to his father about all figures of authority, and his parents became more and more worried about his mental stability. Other witness testimony confirmed Justin's disdain for authority. The court learned he hated his job and called a co-worker a pig lover. Justin had said that now was the time to pop a couple of cops. His social media accounts were also used as further evidence. His Facebook page had increasingly filled up with posts and memes about police, guns, and shootings. On the day of the shooting, Justin shared a quote by comedian Dave Chappelle, who joked, You ever notice a cop will pull you over for a light out? But if your car is broke down, they drive right past you. Just a few hours before the shooting, at 5.37 p.m., Justin also posted the first three verses of Hook and Mouth, a song by the metal band Megadeth, which questions censorship and authority. Justin's police interviews were also played for the court. He said that the main reason he'd gone on the shooting spree was that he wanted to start a rebellion against an oppressive, corrupt government that was squelching the freedom of most Canadians. The court also learned that the July 4th shooting hadn't been the first time Justin planned to strike out against authority. He told police he wanted to hurt the oil industry by setting fire to gas stations in Moncton. As people fled, he said he planned to randomly shoot them to create chaos. But when his bike broke down, he had to abandon his plan. When asked to recount shooting the RCMP officers, Justin revealed a fixation on taking down authority figures. Uh, anyways, I was in the woods and uh, an officer pulled out a gun on me, so anyway. So he, was he on, on foot? Was he in the vehicle? He was on foot. Okay. Then what happened? I took off again. This time I went to a subdivision looking for a forest. Uh, I got cut off from behind, took one out, and I went forward again. Another guy came over. He didn't quite notice me, but then he did. I thought he was a civilian, so I wasn't going to do anything. He was an undercover. Anyways, he turned around, fired. I fired back. He got hit. Third one. Then, after that? After that, I was about to get cut off on Hildegard, so I laid down a bit of suppressive fire. Had to stop, though, because there were uh, civilians in the way, so I took off. Okay. And then I uh, lived like a snake for the last couple of days. The interrogator then asked Justin what he was thinking when he shot the officers. Well, honestly, I know this is going to sound really messed up, but I actually felt pretty accomplished. I know you probably think that's really sick, but um, it's sad they have wife, might have had wife and kids, but every soldier has a wife and kids, right? And it's all about whose side you chose. And uh, they chose the wrong one. During the hearing, there was an opportunity for victims to read impact statements. This would help the judge to consider the devastating and lasting personal costs caused by the shooting. 
When the family members of the fallen officers shared their pain and loss, there wasn't a dry eye in the courtroom. Justin showed no emotion while the heart-wrenching victim statements were read. But when the hearing was coming to a close, he apologized for the shootings, even though he said he realized saying sorry was almost useless. On October 31st, Judge David Smith delivered a precedent-setting ruling when he sentenced Justin to 75 years in prison before he would be eligible for parole. This sentence was the harshest in Canada since the last executions in 1962. While reading his ruling, Judge Smith declared the Moncton shootings were one of the worst crimes in Canadian history. He said Justin showed little remorse and was motivated by a deep hatred of authority. This wasn't the type of person that would ever be released back into society. The families were in support of the harsh sentence and expressed their gratitude to the judge. When commanding officer Roger Brown was asked on the steps of the courthouse how he felt about the ruling, he said he was happy with Canada's justice system, but he knew nothing could ever bring back his fellow officers. No matter what the verdict was, there's no way of bringing back three members we lost and the fathers. The first thought that comes to my mind are the six children. And to me, what that means right now is these six children will never have to sit in a courthouse and listen to a parole hearing of the individual that pled guilty to killing their dad. Although the Moncton shooting criminal trial had been concluded, the litigation involving the case was far from over. In the summer of 2014, RCMP Commissioner Bob Paulson announced an internal review into the incident. He said the inquiry into the shooting was needed to see if any changes had to be made to ensure the safety of the members and the public. The McNeil review was conducted by former Assistant Commissioner and retired Commanding Officer Alphonse McNeil and was released on January 16, 2015. It made 64 recommendations regarding supervision, training, technology and equipment, communications, and aftercare. Issues flagged in the report ranged from chaotic radio communications to officers and not even knowing body armor was available in their vehicles. The RCMP accepted all the recommendations and immediately started to implement them. Four months after the RCMP's internal review was released, the force was charged with four Canadian Labour Code violations. The RCMP was accused of failing to provide members and supervisors with the appropriate information, instruction, equipment, and training in an active shooter event during the Moncton shooting. The RCMP pleaded not guilty and in April 2017 went to trial. Many officers testified as witnesses for the prosecution, and they said, on the day of the shooting, they were afraid and alone amid the chaos. They felt they lacked the training, direction, and leadership needed in an active shooter situation. On September 29, 2017, Judge Leslie Jackson found the RCMP not guilty of failing to provide its members or supervisors 
with the necessary information, instruction, or training. And he stayed the charge of generally failing to ensure the health and safety of its members. But the judge ruled that the RCMP was guilty of failing to provide its members with appropriate use of force equipment and user training. He specifically noted that if the Moncton officers had been equipped with C-8 carbine rifles and proper training, lives could have been saved. When the sentencing hearing was held a few months later, the RCMP was ordered to pay $550,000. Nadine Larsh told the media, My family's life has forever been changed. My three children are growing up without a daddy. No judgment will bring these men back. No judgment will ever make amends. No judgment will ever make reparations. No judgment will serve justice to what happened. No judgment will remedy the harm. No judgment will end me and my family's grief. I feel very strongly that my husband would have been alive today had the RCMP done their due diligence. My only hope with this whole trial and judgment is that the decision makers will do more in the future. On June 10th at 1 p.m., a public regimental funeral was held at the Moncton Coliseum. Thousands of police officers from across North America gathered, as well as colleagues in their full-dress uniform, known as the Red Surge. The Prime Minister and Governor General was also in attendance. Due to the limited seating in the Coliseum, churches, arenas, and community centers across the city broadcasted the funeral and served as gathering places for mourners. Soon, all the venues were overflowing. RCMP pallbearers carried the flag-draped coffins of the slain officers, constables Fabrice Gévaudin, Doug Larsh, and Dave Ross, into the Moncton Coliseum. Corporal Chantel Farah acted as the master of ceremonies during the three-hour funeral. She said the Mounties' deaths were a profound loss. She also said it was important to honor their contributions. Make no mistake, she said, we're also here to celebrate lives of service that contributed to the fabric of this community, this province, and our great country of Canada. When Prime Minister Stephen Harper spoke to the Sea of Red, he framed the police shootings as an attack on the very fabric of Canadian society. We do not need a verdict to know that what happened here is an outrage. Because, my friends, by its very nature, the murder of those sworn to uphold the law, those who donned their uniforms day in and day out to keep our streets safe, is an attack not only on them, but upon all of us on our families, on our communities, on our neighbors, upon our very society itself. When individual services were held for the fallen RCMP officers, the tone was much more personal and emotional. 40-year-old Constable Doug Larsh was originally from Campbellton, New Brunswick, and had been a proud member of the RCMP for 12 years. 
He was an investigator with the Kodiak General Investigation Section, a major crime unit. Doug and his wife Nadine had been married for 12 years and had three daughters. Doug considered his girls his little princesses, and he loved them more than anything in the world. His life revolved around his family, and he put protecting them and his community well ahead of his personal safety. Constable Doug Larsh's eulogy was given by his older brother. He spoke of Doug's selflessness and how he always put others first. I stand here before you with an unbearable sadness, disbelief, rage, because a great man was taken from us far too soon. I have too few words to honor the man who for 40 years my parents called son and I called brother. For 12 years, the love of his life, Nadine, called husband and a man who three little beautiful girls will only ever know as daddy. 32-year-old Constable Dave Ross was born in Victoriaville, Quebec. He joined the RCMP after graduating in July of 2007. He was first posted in the Moncton Detachment as a general duty officer, but Dave had recently earned a position as a police dog services handler, and he quickly developed a close relationship with his canine partner, Danny. Dave was a devoted family man. He and his wife, Rachel, had a one-and-a-half-year-old son who they doted on. At the time of the shooting, Rachel was six months pregnant. He knew how blessed he was and was grateful for all he had. Constable Dave Ross's eulogy was written by his wife, Rachel, and delivered by his brother-in-law. Where so many of us are so apt to complain about things we have or don't have in life, Dave saw the goodness in everything and everyone. Only recently, Dave turned to Rachel and said words that we can all learn from. He said, I am such a happy man. I love going to work every day. I have a wife that I love so much, a beautiful son, and another baby on the way. We have a roof over our head, food on the table. Rachel, we are so blessed. God has provided for us. Forty-five-year-old Constable Fabrice Chevaudin was from France. After receiving his Canadian citizenship, he joined the RCMP. After graduating from the RCMP Training Academy in 2008, he felt like he'd hit the jackpot when he was posted in Moncton at the Kodiak Detachment. He was thrilled to serve the community as a general duty officer. In 2013, Fabrice married Angela, the love of his life. With Angela and their daughter being from Moncton, he found himself even more a part of the community than before. Fabrice had always been known for his kind heart, big smile, and for putting others' needs before his own. Constable Fabrice's eulogy was given by his spiritual advisor. He spoke of Fabrice's love of life and his appreciation for every moment he got to spend with his wife Angela and stepdaughter. Fabrice lived a heart-centered life, a life of joy and happiness, a life where he connected to the community, 
in which he lived, and he was not afraid to show or express this love, and he did so in many different ways. Like the other two fallen officers, Fabrice too also deeply loved his family, as well as his community, and gave all he had to both. Fabrice was a family man. He was the son of Laurence and Jacques, the brother of Marc Christophe and Oda Manuel. He also had another family. He had the RCMP family, of which he was innately proud. He loved being a member of the RCMP family. He cherished each day he went to work, to work in the community, to be a part of the community, to be a protector to the community. Following the funerals, the city of Moncton erected a monument for the three fallen officers, designed by St. John's artist Morgan MacDonald. Life-size bronze statues depicted the three men in a circle, facing outwards with their backs to a porch light. So people are able to go there at any time to pay their respects and also reflect that this is a tragedy that happened, but there's also sort of that rebirth that we did come together as a community, that these were three great RCMP officers. They were fathers, and from that, with the recognition, always giving back to the community because that's what they did as RCMP officers. More than five years after the shooting, the memorial has become a meaningful place where people from Moncton and across the country come together as they continue to heal and honor the fallen men. Although Moncton will never forget the unthinkable events that occurred on that warm June evening in 2014, they made it through one of their darkest days by supporting one another the lights that shone from the country's porch lights were a sign to the people of Moncton that they weren't alone. Even here, in the unknown, even now, you are not alone. Even here, in the unknown, even now, you are Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. 
we'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. I'd like to thank the following Patreon supporters. Jeanette J. Isabella M. Bridget C. Jennifer K. Jody J. Lisa and Kristen M. And I just wanted to give you a quick update of some of the things I've been up to over the last couple months. In December, I was interviewed by Mary Payne from the podcast, Payne in the Pod, and it's available now. On January 15th, I guest co-hosted an episode of Today in True Crime, and it's available as well. And just yesterday, Justin from Generation Y and myself had an interview with Jeremy from the Facebook group and podcast, Podcasts We Listen To. We had an opportunity to talk about our new podcast, Deadly Misadventures. And I think he said it's going to be releasing this Wednesday. So if you're interested in checking any of those out, you can find links in the episode notes. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorrecords.com.au slash G-E. I'm a 